0: I'm Terry Patter, I lead the Janes Intelligence Unit, and on this episode, I'm joined by two of my teammates, Kyle McGrathy and Colm Phillips. Colm, you've not been on this podcast before, so this is your first time. Did you want to maybe just introduce yourself a little bit and talk a bit about your role in the team?
1: Yeah, sure, um, I've managed to avoid it so far. I mean, <laughs> I've been conducting training, pretty much joined, um, I think, the first week of April, so just as lockdown began, so I've not actually stepped foot in your office. Um, pretty much just been um, putting together virtual training courses, and and running those much like everyone else I'm sure who's running OSINT at the moment. Um so just bring it online, which has its pros and cons. But um well, I was handed over the baton of the OSINT Airlines as well. So and that's Yeah, that's it's
0: cool. it's worth mentioning that actually, because I don't think we've we've mentioned that at all on the podcast. But for people who are listening and don't know, we have a regular newsletter we send out called the OSINT Airlines, which um Currently, I think it goes to about 10,000 subscribers. So yeah, if you're interested, it's a, it's a free newsletter that J- Jane's offers. Um, you should be able to find details on our website and do sign up because what, what kind of stuff do you, would you put into that com normally?
1: It's usually a roundup from kind of across James. Um, so James intelligence review, um, bits and pieces that our team have done and the, um, James terrorism and insurgency center as well. Um, so anything that's kind of, um, from, from that month cut. Of anything that's kind of ocean-related, or well, it's all open-source collection anyway. Um, but sometimes it falls into a nice theme, like the one coming out uh, this month with misinformation, disinformation. I think the the one that's about to come out um, that the link we published with that was um, was Twitter's. It, it was a, their article they published about links to their disinformation or disinformation on their platform. I think there's like over 32,000 accounts that have been linked to um, mainly a couple of the big players in the misinformation world. So again, it was just interesting, also interesting the fact that Twitter publishes that type of information now as well. So
0: that is a really interesting development because, and this is something I was talking to. Um, so I spoke to Samantha North on the previous episode of this Jane's World of Intelligence podcast, and we talked about disinformation. Um, there and what some of the platforms are doing about it or not doing and just this week is also uh, there's another episode it's with uh, a guest Cindy Otis who's an expert on disinformation uh, she's a former CIA analyst and um, specializes now in helping uh, companies identify and any clients really identify disinformation and so we talked a little bit about some of the, the changes in terms of Twitter and its stance shifting because this is new isn't it I mean in the past, we've seen social media platforms wanting to, I guess, maintain that neutral role of not deciding what should and shouldn't be said by people almost online unless it is illegal. In the case of disinformation, sometimes it's not necessarily illegal content, is it? It's just misleading. It's, you know, it's designed to, you know, persuade people of something which isn't necessarily true or uh, is, is a, from a specific perspective, and now I think they're clamping down on it. And I think the point Cindy made, which was that I think they've now decided, right, what, what is it that causes real-world harm? And if it does cause that real-world
2: harm, let's get rid of it. Well, they started with something quite strong, didn't they? I mean, they went mm. right out with Donald Trump's, you know, tagging the president's statement as being misleading. Mm. You don't really start with a more aggressive stance than that, so it's definitely yeah. something Twitter's decided they need to deal with.
0: Which is in contrast to some of the other social media platforms, right? I mean, we've not seen any other platforms take such an active stance. None that I can think of.
2: So if not you, um, um. No, if you look at, um, in fact, as we're plugging podcasts, um, <laughs> we might, we might as well, we might as well share that love around. Uh,
0: I, I wasn't trying to plug our podcast, but so yeah, the why daily, not, yeah,
2: well, the daily by the New York Times had a fantastic podcast looking at, um, Facebook's approach to it and its contrast mm. with. With Twitter and other channels and, and looking at how reluctant they are and how their political leanings, not to say that they have sort of conservative right wing political leanings, but that the fact that the regulation that people are talking about in Congress and other places to manage this disinformation. Um, and we got to make a clear distinction between misinformation, somebody who is misinformed or somebody who's just ignorant and disinformation, which is a deliberate funded campaign to achieve a political or social end that is using deliberately um constructed and coordinated information to try and undermine a narrative. Yeah. You know, just, just that's that, that's, when,
0: when, the we, same. when we when we when I talked to Samantha North about that, she also mentioned a term um I think it's a new term she, she's probably applied to this, which is malinformation, which describes that sort of grey area because uh, you know, as she talked about it, the, the this concept that Disinformation goes out there is one thing, but then if somebody believes it and spreads it, but genuinely believes it, it's misinformation, right? So, um, she sort of was using malinformation more as a way of saying it's almost difficult to distinguish between disinformation and misinformation sometimes. And actually, let's just talk about what is the, what is out there that is, uh, that is just bad information really. Well, the
2: two, the two aren't, aren't the same concept they don't focus no, on no, the same no. thing mm. Mm. no one one is a one is a term for information that is inaccurate either deliberately mm. or by, by dint of of bad journalism the other is a deliberate campaign if you go back to soviet doctrine around information confrontation the idea that they would confront every single piece of information that the west put out because they thought it was propaganda and they would try to counteract that with an alternative truth Sounds a lot like fake news and alternative facts. Um, that's where it builds from. There's a doctrine for it. There's a way to set this out. There's different playbooks for it. There's different structures. There's organizations that are funded to do this. So disinformation is a, is, is a very different, far more mature label to just spreading fake news. Um, but the podcast by the daily was talking about how the regulation for this is going to impact Facebook in a more negative way than it will impact other social media platforms. And so Facebook's approach to it has been to be more pro-Republican in how they approach this, because it's the only way they see themselves getting off lightly, comparatively, to other forms of legislation. And the other podcast I think is really worth mentioning is the War College podcast about fake journalists as the latest mm. bit in, in a disinformation twist so this, this has
0: been an interesting case study yeah and
2: you know it's something i think
0: we'd seen a bit of in the past in terms of people identifying fake journalists who look genuine and were putting out information on behalf of a uh i think in that case a state level actor do you want to run us through the details of this because this yeah. is an interesting an interesting uh episode that you, you, you've uh described here
2: so it's an interview with, with Marco and Jones, um, who is a professor at the Middle East studies and, and digital humanities at, um, Hamad bin Khalifa university. Um, and he specializes on this kind of social media disinformation. And the interview is, is really interesting in bringing out a, a story that was broken by the Daily Beast about outlets such as the Washington Examiner, real clear markets and the national interest running op-eds for journalists that didn't exist. That had had fake profiles built out, that had had fake credentials, that had built out fake photos. So this person does not exist. That website um that fascinates some of our students as they just sit there and refresh the page, watching as computer-generated images of individuals <laughs> come up over and over and over again. Just um,
0: just for anyone who doesn't know what that is, so that is a website that is just designed to give you a photo, yeah, of for somebody that whatever exist. purpose you might want. Yeah, but it's just it's it's just using a some
2: form of AI. Yeah. Yeah, and these and Basic these AI. fake journalists mm. had this mm-hmm. sort of corpus of of journalism of articles that they had put up on their own websites. And when you look at the websites, they have different names. The layout, the design, is exactly the same. It's just different colors. They share the same SSL certificates, so the background infrastructure is the same. It's the same registration details for the websites. And we teach this on our, on our masterclass course, because this is the first thing you want to do is understand where this website has come from, mm-hmm. um, to take a look at who's registered it, how long it's been registered, what it was before it was that website. You know, in, in the case of the, some of our examples, when you go back and look at them 10 years ago, it was in a completely different company that ran that website. It had been sold and recycled and, and it had the same SSL certificates. And then as you started to dig into the responses from some of these outlets, one or two of them had printed retractions and said, well, we, we've been alert, alerted to the fact this is a disingenuous article by a journalist that, that doesn't exist. And so we're retracting it. Um, and others had said, well, we agree with the argument that the that the article is making. So we don't really care if they're fake. Well, wow. yeah, that makes them not a news outlet. That makes them an opinion piece um, mm. and, a, and a, a politically aligned sort of subjective talking head rather than. An objective, dispassionate journalist outlet, but it's mm-hmm. really hard to figure that out unless you start digging into it. So really, I urge people to go and listen to that war college podcast for exactly that reason.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Definitely want to check out. Um, I'm sure there's more out there about this type of activity because I know certainly in the past we've seen examples of that and, um, I don't know if it's just symptomatic of a, a day and age where outlets want as much content as possible, and uh, perhaps not vetting uh, the credentials of the people producing content for them, which you know is, is basic source verification, right? Or it's basic verification things that you you would do, or that we would do in the world of you know open source intelligence, but maybe those lessons aren't being strictly applied by some outlets. But like you said, again, part, if it plays into their agenda, and they've got an agenda, then you know that's um, exactly
2: they know the writings on the wall. The whole nature of journalism is changing. We've seen it change within Jane's from, from books and magazines and annual publications to data that's delivered online, that's dynamic, that is up to date in a different way, that's bulk data that we provide to to clients. And that changes how we start to do our own open source intelligence. And so some of that's been incorporated into the masterclass in order to give the basic understanding and some basic skills around Scraping websites and extracting large amounts Mm. of information, particularly if it's in tables, because increasingly our clients don't want a qualitative assessment about something. Mm. They want the raw data because they want it at scale. And that's one of the most difficult things to do. And these organizations know that the commercial realities mean that they can't afford to pay people for for articles. And the only way that these journalists or, or opinion authors get recognition is by giving away free content. And it's something that social sciences and the blob mm-hmm. in the States is, is well aware of because you look at pretty much any public policy or national security think tank and they're publishing a tremendous amount. And a lot of that is free content mm-hmm. or at least they haven't paid the authors for it, right? Because the recognition mm-hmm. is what generates more opportunities mm-hmm. for the author. Mm-hmm. So it's not until they get really well known that they actually start getting paid for their work sure, but I mean and that's
0: not to say that some of that content isn't useful you know, oh, no, so, you know some of it's fantastic, but yes, um, but yeah, you're right in the sense that um, there's there's got to be some basic verification done around information and and I think it's incumbent upon not just the people publishing it but the people consuming it and you know for any of us certainly working in our fields, you know obviously being professional researchers and ocean practitioners i guess that's what distinguishes us in some ways from the average person on the street in that they will potentially not have the time or maybe the skills and the knowledge to verify a lot of that information so like you were describing there um looking into people individuals their websites etc um not everyone's going to have either the time or the inclination to do it um even if they did know how to so you know in terms of trends in osin do you think that within the osin community that sometimes we're a little bit Insular in the sense that we talk to each other a lot, but we don't do enough to explain to people outside the community how to use some of the principles and some of the the methods and the processes that we would apply to help get on top of information and understand whether it's
2: reliable or not well what's the um what's the quote everybody's entitled to an opinion but you're not entitled to the wrong facts the, the <laughs> I think the fundamental problem is that the the motivation, the, the incentives for producing content online are not aligned with verification and validation. The New York Times is not going to pay me more to make sure that every sentence is correct. They're going to pay me for content if I'm well known enough to be worth charging or to be, to be worth paying for that content. And the more content I produce, the more I likely I am to get paid or the more I get paid
0: yeah with news outlets and and uh you know with professional journalism uh, sort of that there are software tools and things like that they have and they have processes that they use to prevent things like plagiarism and, yes. and to do some basic fact checking i guess but there is always there are always things that do slip through and you know there's there's going to be an extent to which they rely on their contributors being reliable and
2: and actually writing you know stuff which is true and isn't yeah. Made up and or false the, or whatever. Yeah. And that's the very insidious part about the disinformation and misinformation is, um, you know, outside of a very small circle of human beings, most people agree that we went to the moon. There was a moon landing. Nobody really disagrees with that outside of a small circle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, no, um, I think, um, I, 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 I I think, think you're breaking some news to calm here. <laughs> um, He's but, looking surprised, <laughs> but that's not the <laughs> argument. So that that's not where the argument is focused for disinformation campaigns. The argument is focused on other aspects of it. So it's the twisting of, of truths that we can agree on in order to support an argument that is disingenuous. That's the difficult and it's really hard, even if you can do the verification of websites, even if you can validate where information has come from, even if you can be confident of the statistics. Actually, outside of websites like First Draft or Snopes or other fact checking websites. Most people don't spend their day looking at something going, I don't think that sounds right. And so I'm going to go and check it. And what disinformation campaigns rely on is the overwhelming cost of trying to do that. If I spent my day doing that for everything I read, I wouldn't get through 5%, 10% of what I read in a day. Mm. I just don't have the time. And it means that you now only rely on things that Feel true as opposed to things that are true. And so, you know, I mentioned the New York Times. I am a big fan of the New York Times. One of the few things I actually subscribe to and pay for, but I think their journalistic processes are so good that I can rely on it. I don't read Breitbart news. I don't agree with it, but that's not the reason I don't read it. I don't read it because I don't think there's any journalistic integrity at all. Doesn't matter whether I agree with their discussions or their arguments or their opinions.
1: But some, I don't think so. It's not all lack of knowledge or verification. I think some of them know full well. They've done it. it Oh, absolutely. absolutely It doesn't make a better story. So run that because it actually sounds better.
0: But do you think that's also, that's what's happening with people consuming that content? Like what you mentioned there, Com, in terms of people are putting it out there and they know that it's not right, but it agrees with what they think. So they they just put it out anyway. But is it the same for people reading stuff where they look at it and they think that there's probably a voice in their head that says, this, isn't right. this might not be right, but it agree- I'm still going to read it. Yeah, yeah I'm still going to believe it. Or I'm still going to
1: share it online. I but mean, then, but it, you know, go what, ahead, what's Tom. the problem with? i was just going to say online as well. Mm. Who cares if it's true or not? If it gets me more likes and more,
2: <laughs> well, I'm not saying that's,
1: that's me. But, yeah, no. but, <laughs> it's true. If yeah. that gets more, if that generates more traffic yeah. to my plat, my my account, or mm. that's going to push me up whatever rankings for whatever platform, mm-hmm. do I care? Probably not, and that's why I'm sure right. some, some people will do. You know, it's almost you know, it's, it's better. You know, at least people are talking about me, type of thing. So even if you're caught out doing something that's maybe wrong, or you you spoke about something that was wrong, at least at least you were still being spoken about and therefore trending in some way.
2: Yeah, and it's think- like a petulant child, you know, where any attention from their parents is good attention, even if it's bad attention, and so they'll act out because they get attention. Yeah. And in a world just, where there's yeah. so much information. I feel you like we're getting an insight into Kyle's childhood here. <laughs> you have to do something in order to stand out. Um I heard a wonderful quote that goes, there's a certain satisfaction in impotent outrage. Like, you know, you can't do anything about it, but you identify with the group of individuals who feel outrage and that somehow assuages the fact that you can't do anything about it. So you naturally gravitate towards things that are more controversial. I don't know whether that's true. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist, but it it certainly feels true and maybe that's the point it doesn't have to be true Um, maybe i've succumbed to that fake news because it feels to me like it's true there's also just a lot of really weird stuff that happens online and i have a feeling and i don't know whether you guys feel the same way (laughs) well well, well, where is this going (laughs) that it's (laughs) so so bear with me a moment so (laughs) i i i have a i have a um an embryonic idea about culture on social media sites so 4chan has its own culture The individuals that spend time on 4chan think in a particular way, interact in a particular way. And so that is a particular type of culture. The culture on Twitter is a a little bit different. I mean, it's a lot different. You do get that pushback, that crowdsourcing. So if you are looking for something that you feel isn't true or you see something that doesn't look right, you can engage in the conversation about whether it is fake or not. And we've seen that happen on a regular basis on Twitter. And then you get the abyss of human misery that is the content section in YouTube, where after about four or five content uh comments that are related, it suddenly descends into, you know, vitriol and 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 hatred. And that's it's it seems to be a really weird thing. And I th- I it, you, may, you may you
0: may see a real example.
2: Yeah, I mean you may see a real yeah, example when this video goes onto YouTube. <laughs> ab- absolutely and 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 so be it. Um but mm. The really interesting thing for me is looking at the demographics of individuals that use YouTube, it is far more young male than it is balanced and reflective of the rest of the population. And I think that has something to do with the way conversations are held, the type of language that's used, the expectation that, well, I'm going to say something that is offensive, but it's okay because you know, I'm talking to somebody like me, so the expectation that you have. I mean, Twitch is another example. Is it Twitch, the the gaming social media site? No, that's another example of things that are full of obscenities and and just ludicrous teenage conversations. And and in amongst all of that, there are people actually getting hurt by these comments. But you're sitting there involved in this conversation, and you immediately mirror yourself to the other person and think, well, you know, if if I can say that. And acceptable to my ears then it must be acceptable to other people's ears there's no real nuance or mm-hmm. sensitivity that i'm actually talking to an audience that is different to myself because the only thing i see on the screen is myself and that so, makes it really difficult
0: yeah and so stepping back a bit from the abyss of um, social media and comments on social media um you know, in terms of the i guess it just and just thinking about what you what com was mentioning earlier about the training that we deliver and things like that and and taking that doing that doing it virtually et cetera um as, as have you guys seen anything within the training that you've both been delivering um, where people are asking more questions around verification et cetera? Because I know certainly. A few years ago, I remember when we were delivering open source intelligence training. It felt like you'd get to the session about verification of information, and most people would be like, "Yeah, you know what? Don't worry. That's you know we don't need to spend much time on it. We get it. It's a standard process. You know, it's it's easy verifying information. You know, it's it's fine. We we know how to do it." Are you finding that actually now you're getting more questions, and and what are the types of questions that maybe people are throwing out about uh about verification, and what are the sort of challenges people are dealing with? Without going obviously into specifics about individuals or organisations we train, but are you seeing anything in general that's a, a kind of a trend in what people are, uh, are finding a is a challenge in terms of information verification?
2: Can
1: want to start just start with it? Yeah, it it's more just how you do you sift through the huge amounts of it because I think most of the people we got in our courses, like you said, they're kind of analysts in some shape or form anyway. So they're used to analyzing other collection and it's just, they're just well aware that, you know, within the different platforms online, everything needs to be verified. And there's just it, how do you wade through the misinformation and actually get to the mm. truth behind it. And um, the, the big one as well is how do you identify the people behind the misinformation and why are they doing it, um, which can be quite difficult. Um, sort of act as an intent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, is there their theme? Like basically their themes. Um, mm. Especially in the, in the UK, you know, this week um, the chat like the Russian, you know, is you know, kind of, mm-hmm. considered kind of. Um, so this is the this life. is the um,
0: parliamentary committee report into Russian interference in yeah. last yes. election, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So
1: yeah, mm. I mean, it's it's you know, it's it's good. Th- it's a good thing in a certain way because it, more people are aware of it. But um, it, yeah, it's just that. Especially like I think like Brexit, coronavirus as well. There's been so so much um kind of misinformation or um yeah um malinformation, whatever whatever it is, it's just been there's just so much of it now and people are losing, you know, people are losing friends, um, so that their networks are, are getting a lot smaller because people are sick of kind of even though they know that the person's not pushing it, it was that whole, you know, um well, a lot of people seem to hemorrhage friends, uh after the brexit you're either my friend or you're not my friend anymore depending on which way you voted um but again people especially in the uk i think it's i think it's kind of pushed not necessarily verification but awareness of misinformation um so again you know how how do we cut through that um or um make a lot of it is our our team is now looking specifically at misinformation so how do we go about how do we go about finding it? Um, where does it come from? That type of thing. Um, the drill, yeah, great, I think the, questions.
2: Mm. No, um, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think we, um, so the way we've structured the master classes is, is based around the intelligence cycle. And mm. as you start to go around the intelligence cycle, um, you know, direction, collection, processing, dissemination, the tasks get increasingly more complicated and they require more maturity and they require more effort. And collection is the thing that takes 80% of the time that delivers you 20% of, of the task. Um, so the thing that at least that I'm seeing and the conversations that I'm having is, um, Colm's right, it's, it's one about volume. There's so much information. How do you um, collect that? How do you pre-process it? So How do you collate it in a way that you can start comparing a thousand comments on YouTube with a thousand comments on Twitter about the same subject? How do you start to break that down? Um, there's the the speed at which you have to be able to do it. Um, so that's overwhelming as well. But then even if you can get the verification right, even if you can identify individuals or organizations that are pushing a particular message, even if you can understand the technical um, uh, infrastructure that they're using to deliver that message, um, the motivation, which should be the easiest thing, because you should be aware of the arguments. You know, if you're a If you're an analyst that focuses on Southeast Asia or or the South China Sea, you should be aware of the various perspectives of the Chinese, Taiwanese, Filipino, um, Vietnamese and other governments and where they stand on that argument. Um, So it should be quite, in theory, quite easy to understand the motivations Um, in practice. Trying to identify that is very, very difficult, especially because I can sit in North London and produce a vast amount of information, having never been to the South China Sea, mm. and pollute that conversation mm-hmm. with no real knowledge um, and no real clear motivation or driver for doing so. Yeah, I mean, sometimes um, it could be
0: commercial. You know, people are being paid yes. to use this type of stuff, right? And yeah. um, without, like you said, it could it, it could just be clickbait. It could be, you know, that they could be driven by commercial uh, reasons. You know, if they're throwing. Com- um, controversial content out there like con was mentioning earlier it gets shared more it, you know uh, people generate more uh revenue and attention i suppose ultimately but uh so yeah there could be all kinds of reasons i guess in that sense um for, for content being thrown out and we've probably seen that you know with issues like coronavirus and brexit and you know whether it's yeah. regional political geopolitical issues um but yeah people will jump on those bandwagons and produce content that the it was seeks attention, I suppose. Um, yeah. uh, I mean, Carl, Carl you mentioned the OSINT masterclass. Um, this is probably a good point to bring up the latest development in that. And what we've been doing this year in terms of uh, delivering training differently, because it's something we've been working on for a while now. And, um, you know, I, I think back to when we started delivering open source intelligence training more than 10 years ago, um, with it well in partnership with the legendary Arno rosa um initially and then i think over the, over the last few years obviously we responded i think to demand from customers for to get more of a well how does Jane's do open source intelligence kind of perspective on things and how do we do what we do so that you've been working hard on the development of our new course this year do you want to just talk about how that's evolved and how you've brought that about and what it, what the new course does and how it works. Cause I think that would be useful for people who are listening, um, who want more training on how to deal with some of the issues that we've talked
2: about, you know, yeah. the challenge of spending too much time collecting information, trying to verify it, all of those things, you know? Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, I feel like I've passed a small kidney stone for the amount of effort. It was, but, <laughs> um, but that, you know what? I really enjoyed it. And, and you're right. We've been trying to do this for a while, um we've always had great feedback from from in-person delivery and and i i've always been a fan of of in-person delivery and i'm surprised at how much i can get done online um so we've had to structure it in a slightly different way um i at the risk of of um confusing matters um i would consider it an intelligence course that uses open source intelligence to teach you how to go through these processes because these processes are generic to any form of intelligence um we're just using open source intelligence as the method for collecting, collating, processing and disseminating data. So it's it's a discipline in its own right. Um, so having said that, it begins with a little bit of theory around intelligence cycles and, and processes and some of the tasks that are required. Some of the individuals that are um, key to any kind of intelligence organization, sort of information requirements managers, RFI managers, stuff like that. Um, and, and in that sense, it's very much um, focused on an organization that has a, a remit to deliver intelligence of any kind, whether that's um, a government organization, a defense industry organization, a subcontractor for for government, um, a, a university, a think tank, things like that. Those are the sorts of individuals that would have to have these skills. And then we start to break down the, the most important bit, the security and the, and the safety aspect, because Um for open source intelligence, the security tradecraft is fifty percent the technology and the equipment that you use. Um there are technical solutions that help to mitigate um your exposure and and obfuscate your activity. Um and then the other fifty percent is tradecraft. And you have to be more diligent than you would be in probably other forms of tradecraft because um because the risk of exposure is something that you don't really see any reflection of. So you don't know whether you've been compromised or not until it's too late. So we start with that, uh, move on to an understanding of where information lives online. Um, I, I, I quote the, um, the Tao of open source intelligence, which is an excellent book. Uh, it's an audio book. If, if anybody wants to spend some time listening to it, it's quite quick. Um, and, um, and I, I break that down because um, these are uh, they're common ideas about open source information or digital information, but trying to understand where you go to find different information. If you're looking for a conversation about current events, actually Twitter is a really good place for it. If you're looking for technical information around subjects you don't know much about military satellite communications, for example, actually, Wikipedia is not a bad place to start because the technical experts that understand this have published stuff online and the technical terms don't really change. You know, it's not as contentious as if you're looking for, I don't know, um, a history of religious conflict in the Middle East on Wikipedia. That's a really contentious page to be reading on Wikipedia. Um, it's edited on a regular basis by different individuals. There is a whole, in fact, there's a whole website dedicated to controversial pages on Wikipedia. Almost none of those are science or medical subjects. Mm. You know, that's, that's pretty much written by individuals who know what they're talking about. So it's a good place to start. It's also a really good place to start to find the sorts of information you need for Boolean searches and for your collection plan. Um, And then from there, we move on to kind of the automation, a little bit of of automation. I was surprised at how much you can do with um, Microsoft Excel and Microsoft uh, Power BI, which are enterprise software. Most organizations in the world are going to have access to at least the first one, probably the second. Um, And Microsoft spent a lot of time trying to automate the integration between these different apps. Through Power Automate. And that gives you the ability to to scrape information at a larger scale, to pre-process it so that when it gets to the human in the loop, they've got more time to do that analysis. We cover social media and different platforms. We've taken the the decision to only cover platforms you don't need to log into um, and only use tools that um, don't require a a login. um, Less a Twitter account, because actually, you know, you can set one up and it's and it's fairly low risk and you can start to do that uh, and look at Twitter in that way and, and collect information on that. And a Gmail account, which gives you a large amount of third party logins for things like Data World or um, or other repositories of information that's fairly low risk. Um, of course, both that platform and Google know that that's what you're logging into. But actually it gives you the ability to manipulate data online. You can use things like Google refine and things like that, Google data studio, um, and do quite a bit with it. And then as we move on from there, the more cognitive tasks, the, the, the traditional intelligence aspects like, you know, is your, is your critical thinking something that you're aware of and practicing because it's a habit? Um, are you aware of your biases? Even though you can't really change your biases, are you aware of them? Um, and, Terry, you had a, a, a conversation, a podcast, um, all about um, biases, both yeah, conscious and unconscious.
0: And one of my favorite discussions that we've had on the podcast, I think, with Martha Whitesmith talking about uh, cognitive biases. and it's, But it's been an issue that's come up in a few. And like you said, yes. it's, it's one of those things that I think for people who are, aren't aware of it, I think it makes such a big difference, not just in how they analyze the information they've got, but how they go about finding it. So you know um and and com, you'll have seen this as well probably on some of the training you you you've delivered recently where you know people will go out you, you'll give them an exercise perhaps and search for information on something, and the keywords they select will be very much based around their own biases um, That's for me the first step of trying to overcome your own cognitive bias I mean I don't know com yeah. if you if you've got particular techniques you try and get people to use to get around that, but um or is is that is that something you're finding that people it's it's harder to do when you're delivering training online as well rather than in classroom because that is one of those challenges because you've been doing it virtually i know kyle the course you're talking about is sort of more self study uh, yes in the the approach we've taken to it but calm you've been delivering virtual sessions online um so slightly different but uh trying to still deal with that um issue of i think um uh sort of bridging the gap while
1: we can't get into
0: necessarily into classroom so easily but, yeah yeah I
1: mean, it's, it's interesting because I, I think when you say bias people get a bit offended um, mm. so yeah. obviously um but I, I talk just I, I try and turn it more into a perspective thing so when you're collecting yeah. um and again, sometimes it doesn't matter it's but it's good to be aware of both perspectives um because you know if if we're looking for terrorists, we're looking for a terrorists, therefore we'll get information written up about terrorists. But they don't, because they don't call themselves, they don't think themselves as terrorists, you know? And again, just, just knowing that is, um, opens up huge amounts of different yeah. information, um, whether that's on a search engine. And, and again, yeah, it's not just, it's for the whole piece, isn't it? But mainly for collection, but yeah, kind yeah. of what, what information do you want and from whose perspective? Um, that, again, that's um, exactly right. What I'm finding is the, um, kind of, I don't know if it's even a thing, like investigation bias, like oh, I'm, fan, I'm familiar with Facebook or I have Facebook, therefore I'll look on Facebook or I'll look on Twitter. Rather than actually break down you know what is the demographic of that country's you know in terms of online you know going after going after a forty something um kind of managing director of a company is very different to like an eighteen year old drug dealer and just because they'll say and do different things but they'll they'll be in totally different parts of the internet or they'll be knocking around different social media platforms yeah. um, mm.
2: So there's a digital geography to to yeah. the information online. I mean, if you you know if you're doing research on the Second World War from Russia's perspective, you translate the Great Patriotic War into Russian and you use the Cyrillic translation or the Russian translation for that. You don't look for World War Two even translated into Russian because they don't talk about it in that way. Mm-hmm. The official name for it is the Great Patriotic War, uh, and so that's the only way you're going to understand the. Russian cyber geography, the demographics, the language and the conversations that are being had there. And this is, you know, part of our course content. We don't spend too much time yeah. focused on the, on the structural analytical techniques because they're hard to do. They take time, but they normally require more than one person. Sure. But for but the things that you- helps. Being aware of your biases, definitely, yeah,
0: for sure. Even with having a structured approach to these things and using those techniques, there's no guarantee you can avoid the effects of biases, whether it's individually or collectively. But with the space that's opened up a bit with the online course that you described there, um, Kyle, in terms of being self-study, and those kind of topics where it does take more time and effort, whether it's using some of those tools you mentioned like Excel, et cetera, to collect information in a more refined way, or whether it's sort of doing the the analysis or thinking more about analysis. Is that one of the advantages of, I mean, well, I asked that question knowing full well that for me at least I see it as an advantage and I know I've gone through the content and I've, I found that you, you have more time to sort of mull over some of these issues and, and digest the information and, take it on board which you wouldn't necessarily do in a classroom
2: you know yeah so i mean you and i took the decision early on that um, this would be a a self-study course an independent study course that's progressive in that it gets more complex as we go through but also in the fact that we've we've structured it around an established process it reduces the cognitive burden and and the load for learning more skills and it contextualizes those skills Um, and then at the same time we've added in some exercises some knowledge checks and then and then some assessments um, and, and the reason why we do that is to get people to practice it because this is a, a trade craft and tradecraft requires practice to to be mm. proficient but I wanted individuals to walk away feeling competent and confident that they understood the processes that they understood the trade craft that they could apply it in an open source intelligence role and they need to take time to explore that so I think If you from start to finish, um, we've had a couple of people finish it, and it's taken them about 40 hours to to go through that. So it's a a week long learning course, which is not too long, but Mm. we've given uh, we structured it in a way that allows people six months to do it because they can do little bits at a time, they can go back and forth, Mm -hmm. and and they can refer to the content afterwards. And then at the end of it, you know, there's a little bit about report writing, feedback, and evaluation, because that's probably the most underappreciated part of 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 intelligence you know no feedback is good feedback that's a terrible way to approach it Um, but i asked (laughs) but that's what that's what you normally get right and i asked one of our our colleagues who really dislikes briefing he's good at it but he really just he doesn't feel comfortable doing it standing up in front of a group of people and having a conversation about what he knows and trying to get some response back and he's recorded an audio lesson in the, the module That deals with the preparation for briefings um, and things like that. And one of the things he was saying was one of the the most interesting briefings he'd ever been to was at the end of it, the briefer turned around and said to the audience, right, well, you know, you've, you've obviously asked me questions. Now I have questions for you. What did I fail to answer? What more do you need to know? Did this answer the questions that you came into the room with? Did this change your perspective? Because he's looking for feedback on his own assessments. That's very rare that you get an analyst that has the time, the self-awareness of their own analytical techniques and biases and, and shortcomings. And we all have them to try and mitigate those by engaging with his customers. It's a fantastic relationship to have. It mm-hmm. caught the entire audience off balance and the senior individual in the room turned around and said, yes, well, actually, there's this. Um mm-hmm. And that spawned another conversation. And when I was talking to him about it, um that that's a really useful way to. To approach it. So we've put some case studies in as well. And then there's an assignment at the end that that's optional, but gives people the, the ability to, or the opportunity to go through the process of responding to an RFI, refining it, building a plan, and then delivering a report that then gets assessed by, by members of the JIU. And then they get feedback um, that hopefully helps them feel like they're more capable in terms of their open source intelligence analysis and, and tradecraft.
0: Mm, great, and so we've got this obviously now this new self study online Osip masterclass, which is fantastic. Um, I've I've gone through it and it, it's great. I feel like I shouldn't be. I don't know. Should I be boosting ego I'm not sure. No, a lot,
2: of no you, a, a lot of it's content from you. A lot of it's content from Colm. A lot of it's content that we've had before, but we've now you know I've had the time. The, the the silver lining of of the pandemic and the lockdown is I've had the time to structure it in a way that hopefully is useful for people. Um, but this isn't new stuff. This is just restructured stuff. It is it's, definitely
1: it's, the best online OSINT self-study masterclass change that has
2: ever done. <laughs> well, it is the only one, yes. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> but there more... Yeah, it's true. There are also more to come afterwards, which yeah. I think is where you were going with it was, you know, what it would yeah, be. Yeah.
0: So I think the, you know, for anyone who's interested, you can find out more information, obviously, about the master on our website. Um, in, I think Kyle, Kyle, you described it in detail there, which is, which is really helpful. Um, you know, we, we've we got that option now for people who wanted, and I think we've, we've had demand for it from a while, for a while. Obviously that's been accelerated because of the pandemic and this course would have been sort of ready to go much sooner, but we were waiting for a couple of things to fall into place this year, which they've done. And, um, so we would have launched it regardless of the pandemic anyway. But as you said, you've had time to maybe spend a bit more focused, uh, time and effort on it and, and, and really refine it before it's gone out. So that's been really helpful. I think for anyone who does the course, you know, obviously it's aimed at perhaps those who are starting out in open source intelligence or need a refresher, but it, it does take people, I think, not just through the basics. I think it actually takes people quite far into all the things they would need to do the role really well. And so, uh, you know, for anyone who's working in open source intelligence or just wants to apply those techniques to their work, uh, I think it's very comprehensive in that sense. But where I think people go next is that once they've done that course, if there are specific aspects they want to go into more detail on, things that are maybe just outside the scope of the course, that's where we're looking for feedback from people. I think to help us determine which will be the next specialist courses that we develop, because that will be where we you know, the next sort of area that we're going into, which will be to come up with a range of specialized open source intelligence courses, such as perhaps, um, looking at open source imagery and intelligence, you know, uh, what can we do with satellite imagery, et cetera, geospatial intelligence? We've definitely seen some, uh, demand for that and how to, you know, use, you know, how to, how to actually make the data usable, uh, for, for geo, yeah. you know, I think that's an important part of uh of any sort of geo process. So things like that, you know, the, the, those are a couple of examples of areas we can go into. Intelligence analysis, you know, you mentioned there sort of yeah. dealing with cognitive biases and things. And I've often thought that intelligence analysis is a difficult thing to teach in a classroom. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time to learn. People need time to practice it in between yes. training sessions. And, you know, unless you're able and, you're, and in an environment where you can spread out the training over a number of weeks, perhaps, um, which we, you know, we can, we can certainly do in classroom sessions for customers where they need us to do that. But with the, with the online delivery mechanism, you know, I think it makes it much easier to, to delve into complex topics like that. And as I said before, give people time to go over the, that information and, and really figure out for
2: themselves what it means and how they might apply it. Yeah. And, and, you know, as much as the first rule of open source intelligence is if you can't find out how to do something, Google how to do something, which, you know, at, at this stage, I mean, how did I, how did I figure out how to use Power BI? Actually, I was just playing around with Power BI and watched a YouTube video about it. You know, So for all my disparaging of YouTube comment section, when it comes to instructional videos, there's no better place to learn than YouTube and pick up pretty much anything you need to from there, um, because this is always a community of individuals interested in it, mm-hmm. um, which is really great when you're looking at things like weapons recognition. And that's the next task for me is going to be, well, how do I build uh, an open source intelligence, imagery intelligence course that takes advantage of things like Google Street View, that takes advantage of the fact that there's so much imagery and, and video footage out there. But that also starts to look at different, you know, we're using it in novel ways to build a richer picture because so much of what we're getting now is, um, you know, if we, if we go back to the question about verification, we've almost skipped over the text part of it. People's attention spans are so short. Nobody's worried about the text in a, you know, 1500 word article from The Washington Post. As good as that may be, they want a three minute video um, that they can watch online on the commute to work or now while they're sitting around at home. And so they don't have the patience for it. That's harder to produce. It is harder to verify. It is harder to make it accurate. So there's a difficulty in producing that information. There's also a difficulty in trying to understand it. And now we're looking at, at how to do things like that. And, you know, mm-hmm. vehicle recognition is something I want to build into an imagery course. Like, how do you, how do you tell the difference between a T-72 and a Challenger 2? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and unless you have grown mm-hmm. up with them, so to speak, you don't mm-hmm. really know. They just look like a main battle tank. Um yeah. and that's it. And and so those are the sorts of courses we want to build out going going forward and they're very specific. Um mm-hmm. but that's that's the point. There's a lot of specialist open source intelligence mm-hmm. that we can do. Um not so much on the cybersecurity or, or or personnel investigations, although there's there's that too, but more on the tasks that reflect the sort of things that James has done for the last hundred mm-hmm. and twenty something years. <laughs> you know, that is a focus on military defence security subjects. Yeah,
0: no, exactly. I think that's, that's exactly right. And I think we'll, we'll see as things develop what sort of feedback we get and what, um, interest people have. So if people are interested in other types of courses, do get in touch with us. You know, we'd love to hear about it. Um, because that's obviously things we're, we're planning to develop. So yeah, do let us know. You know, I think we're up against the the end of the episode here, guys. But thanks for taking the time to talk about some of the recent things you've been working on and developments in a, in open source intelligence. This has been really uh, interesting to discuss and chat about. This I know we talk about it regularly, obviously, anyway. But it's always useful to carve out time, I think, to actually catch up and properly go through some of the things that um, that are, that we're developing and 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 that we're seeing as well. You know, out there in the in the environment around us, because I think it's impossible for any one person to stay on top of everything that's going on with open source intelligence so you know sharing ideas and thoughts and and just things that you were all seeing is it was really helpful if you are interested in our online training do come to our website for more details thanks for your time guys it's been great as always look forward to talking to you again very soon (laughs) yeah not a problem at all cheers
2: bye